Please be advised. The following program contains stories and accounts of true events from the lives of residential school survivors. Due to the sensitive subject matter, some participants decided to remain anonymous. These testimonials may include accounts of physical and sexual abuse and may be triggering to some listeners. If you or someone you know is experiencing pain or distress as a result of the residential school experience, you're not alone. Please call the Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. They are there to help, and they're available 24 hours a day. Okay. Welcome, my relatives. I just like to acknowledge the land that we reside in, the land of the Blackfoot-speaking nations, Siksika, the Kainawa, Pagan, and also after treaty number seven, we also acknowledge Stony Nakoda and Chutina, a rightful acknowledgement of the people and the land that we reside in. This is Survivors, an eight-episode podcast made in partnership with CJSW and the Department of Canadian Heritage, providing insight into the lived experience of residential school survivors and their families. The residential school system ran across Canada from 1883 to 1996. Throughout its lifetime, over 150,000 Indigenous children were removed from their homes, stripped of their cultures, and forced through a system created to destroy their senses of identity. The lasting negative impact of the residential school system continues to devastate communities of survivors. My name is Cameron Seifert. I'm a Métis individual studying the topics of sociology and international Indigenous studies at the University of Calgary. Okay. Hello, my name is Grace Heavy Runner. My Blackfoot name is Buxiganaki. I am from Ghana, First Nation, Alberta. I am a residential school survivor who attended the St. Mary's Residential School, which operated from 1898 to 1988. This is my story, but also the story of many. Throughout the entire history of the residential schools, students face problems ranging from rancid food, or being forcefully deprived food, to forced sterilization and what some have called a purposeful spread of tuberculosis. The system itself allowed for common experiences of hunger and disgust. In general, the food was awful and there wasn't enough of it. Macaroni or spaghetti was served four times in one week. Bologna is mentioned five times, and the report from another noting, one menu card recommended 8.5 pounds of minced meat for 50 children, meaning less than three ounces per child. Often, the food was rotten, bug-ridden, spoiled, or considered unfit for human consumption. The food the residential school served was boring. We had the same things served day in and day out sometimes. 
there was no love put into the food. By the time the bus driver dropped us off at the public school in town, my bagged lunch was already eaten. I was growing and I needed to eat, and many times went to bed hungry. The children were hungry. They needed more. But you ate what you were given. Edmund Matatawaban, in his autobiography, Up Ghost River, recalls an example of asking for more food ending with a severe, vicious whipping. He provided other examples of staff, in this case, a priest who took advantage of the children's hunger and would molest children in exchange for giving them bread. On the other hand, there were heavy punishments for the children who didn't eat. There are historical accounts of children refusing to eat bug-ridden food or rotten meat being beaten or locked in an attic for weeks. Many children couldn't keep the food down, but throwing it out wasn't an option. Author and residential school survivor Bev Sellers recalls one girl's experience. Once, when I was doing chores in the dining room, I witnessed a young girl, Junie Paul, get caught throwing food into the garbage. June had made the mistake of scraping her food directly off the plate into the garbage can. A nun saw her and made her dig the food out of the garbage and eat it. Of course, the food was now mixed with other garbage. Junie sat there crying and gagging, trying to get the food down. If she vomited, she probably would have to eat that too. During another period, the food got so bad we just couldn't eat any of it. Instead of throwing out the rotten morning mush, the cook mixed it with the soup at lunch. We couldn't eat that, so the mushy soup was mixed with the supper. This went on for a couple days, before the mess got so bad it just had to be thrown out. There were many hungry bellies in those days. The food was not good. I had stale, stale bread, lumpy porridge. We had uh, dairy cows on, on the place, and the boys went out to milk them and work the farm. But all our milk went to Cardston, and we, uh, we had powdered milk that was lumpy. It wasn't even mixed up good, and a lot of the food was burnt. Everything about the kitchen and dining room was dirty, and there was a lack of cleanliness and sanitary care in the handling of the food. The place was full of flies. It was not uncommon to see food particularly black with them. Cockroaches were everywhere. Between 1942 and 1952, Canada was performing experiments, purposefully depriving children of specific vitamins and minerals, ascorbic acid and vitamin A, and to a lesser degree, thiamine, calcium, and niacine, as well as using a special enriched flour that wasn't legal for sale anywhere else in Canada under food adulteration laws. They additionally stopped medical and dental treatments towards the children, so the effects, which included the development of anemia, could be observed. Uh, I was sick from the food, and I had a, a chronic diarrhea from eating the processed food for four and a half years as opposed to the game meat that we had because we still had to hunt for our meat and process our own meat at that time. I was in the 40, in the 50s. And so when my, my mother doctored me with these yellow flowers, sticky flowers, and I never had 
that kind of problem forever after that. As early as 1887, the department's records acknowledged the poor construction, cheap materials, and lack of forethought that went into the school buildings themselves. It was not uncommon for 25% of the children to die of tuberculosis. File Will's Industrial School, which resided in Saskatchewan, had 69% of its students die from TB over the span of a decade. Students that were both sick and healthy were placed together in classes and were made to share accommodations. The government did nothing to improve the conditions of the schools or the children's health. The tubercular epidemic, which had moved across the country, was the result of white presence coupled with the Aboriginal community's lack of immunity to infectious diseases. It was also a consequence of the process of colonization. My name is Cynthia Wesley Estimont. So uh, my work in my graduate program, uh, the master's program, I should say, was about the impacts of, of epidemics, the aftermath of epidemics on the Indigenous population. And I used our, you know, this continent and that my comparative continent was Europe that had the bubonic plague. And how did people respond to the bubonic plague? And how did, it, did people here on this continent respond to the epidemics? And that led me to recognize the, you know, the impact of those, those epidemics led to a lot of the addictions and a breakdown of uh, a lot of the governance systems. They, you know, the, the moving over from traditional medicines to the missionaries, because the missionaries knew how to work with smallpox. You know, we didn't have those kinds of immunities, but the, but the people that came here did. So they understood how to treat those diseases, smallpox, influenza, and all those things. So there was kind of a movement over because people wanted to survive, obviously. And then I just started, to, from there I went into a doctoral program, and I just wanted to know what were the, what were the long-term intergenerational effects of unresolved grief and trauma on Indigenous populations. You know, how are we dealing with that as we move forward? Because it wasn't just the, at contact, all the, the epidemics and the, and the losses, that, you know, huge numbers of people dying, like something like 90% of the population continentally, you know, 76% or 72% in Canada, like what is now Canada, huge numbers of people died. And, and anthropologists still argue, you know, whether there was 12 million people here or 120 million people here, but there were a lot of people here in civilization. So I just went from there and started looking, just tracing it into the present. And the fact of the matter is, because of that unresolved grief and trauma, much of that hurt has resonated into the present, because there has been no time. So let me, just one little small thing. The uh, bubonic plagues in Europe hit on average every 40 years. And in 40 years, you can do a lot of reconstituting. You know, economies, you know, populations, babies born, you know, all of that. Whereas in, in, on, this, on this continent, the epidemics hit on average every 7 to 14 years. They were constant. So people had no time to represent them, resolve them, and, you know, grieve them, and then move forward. They were constantly carrying that grief into the next generation. So that's why we have this, what we talk about is this legacy effect or this intergenerational impact, because it hasn't been, we have never stopped long enough. We've never been in a place where we can relax enough to do the actual proper healing that's necessary to bolster ourselves so the next generation does not have to carry that. And, and we're still there in many places, you know, in remote communities in the north. Some of us in southern, more culturated areas have had opportunity to do counseling. We've had opportunity to 
you know, to get the kinds of education that take us into the kind of work uh, that, we, you know, we find satisfaction in other areas and we can start to resolve. And we raise our children differently because we're not fighting poverty. We're not fighting crappy housing. We're not fighting food insecurity. You know, we're not fighting all of those things that are actually keeping a lot of our remote communities locked into these places of despair. So we have to be responsible as people who have made the, you know, that shift. We have to be responsible and, and, and work hard to ensure that the people that haven't got to the access that we have are taken care of and that they have an ability and, and, and the time given to actually do that resolution process. We have lots of work to do. We're not there yet. The health care of children was minimal and segregated. If the school infirmaries were insufficient to help in a medical emergency, students would be sent to Indian hospitals. The system ran with racist policies, staff, and were notorious for dealing with patients in extreme, painful procedures and treatments. These segregated hospitals worked as an arm of the assimilation machine led by the government and the church, with their closure only beginning in the 1960s. Grandmother passed away. She passed away of TB. And there was other children in the household, but there was the only two of us that was kind of close, was close to my grand grandmother. And for some reason, they took only me and my older sister from the house because we was closer to my grandparents. Like we slept with them, stuff like that. I don't remember getting a a test, a, a next ray. I just remember getting picked up right from the from right from the house. And I I never walked. I, I stayed in bed until the day I was discharged. And then I don't remember much of my uh, stay there because I I acquired a disorder called disassociation. I totally disassociated from my surroundings and my the people who were there. So I don't really remember much of that stay at the sanatorium. The mental trauma received in these schools has been linked to the disproportionate rate in which Indigenous people in Canada face living with mental illness, struggling with addiction, and the outrageous overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the justice system. As time went on, we learned to survive the bullying from older students. When I look back, I know I was in a depression. We learned how to cope by having air bands and playing dolls till it was bedtime. It was like kids raising kids because there was no mom and dad and there was only one supervisor and we hardly seen her. Okay, uh, Mr. Wendico, my name is uh, Red Green. That's my Blackfoot name. Uh, my, <clears throat> my name is Clarence Wolfleg. I'm from Sixaga Nation, not too far from Calgary. So the challenges in boarding school is sometimes you see, hear, and experience things and say, how can I deal with it? Who can I, who can I talk to so he understands what is it that I'm carrying? I've seen a lot of people that were abused. There were, like we, we had the kind of a privilege when weekends we would go home and then go back on Sunday evenings 
you had to kind of, you know, wash up. Seeing kids being thrown in, you know, showers that were you could see you could see the steam coming out. That's how hot it was. Kids being thrown in those showers. But as far as us guys being under that kind of like the regime of the residential school, we went through all the the physical, the emotional. And all the other all the other abuses that uh, that people have been hearing, you know, through the TRC, we went through all that. There was strappings. There was you, if you weren't listening, you'd depending on who which nun was taking care of you. I used to remember getting disciplined by by different nuns and either through strappings or through kneeling in the corner for hours on end, or you would, you would have to do different kind of work in the church. Like maybe, maybe you'd have to go clean the whole church because you were, you weren't listening or physically and emotionally. They, you know, they, 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 they played a lot of mental games with you. It is common that survivors of the residential school system live with the symptoms of PTSD. Colleen Cardinal's experience, outlined in her book, Raised Somewhere Else, detail learning how compounded and prolonged experiences can take even further effects. She came to understand that PTSD and CPTSD were very different, with PTSD usually being a reaction to a single event and CPTSD being defined as multiple or ongoing traumas with the feeling of being trapped that can last from childhood to adulthood. There's a new uh, term that came up, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, meaning that you still are suffering from the whatever it is that's causing you to have this post-traumatic stress. But uh, the complex, they put a C after it, meaning that you're still being put through that trauma. Okay, next to Kwa Nitanako Baksikoyi, Nistu Denisuthane Kisiksikatsitapi. My name is Gets Crazy Boy. I am Blackfoot and Dene. Uh, both my parents have uh, post traumatic stress disorder from residential schools. Um, both of them were abused. To what degree, they, don't, they won't tell me. Knowing some of the people that attended with them, uh, it's a pretty safe bet to say that they were really abused in the, in the worst possible ways, especially with my, do- my, my father in the northern community of um, up in Fort Chip. I forget what it was called. That place was horrific. All of his brothers, um, they were all beaten and molested. And, um, it was almost like they were so far up north that no one really was looking. And they didn't really care anyways, but it felt like because they were further up and further out, um, these insanely evil people just were having, it was just their playground. And the emotional repression is the one like my relate, I don't have re- I don't have a relationship with my dad right now, uh, just because of how how messed up he was. I, I never growing up, I never really had a, a father, like a, a father that was there and present. You know, he was always emotionally dis- just distant, emotionally cut off. Um, you know, we never really did father son things growing up. 
it's it's up to you but you got to make that choice in your head to say i'm gonna do it because i did it and i didn't have the proper upbringing too you know i went through my childhood with some seeing bad stuff growing up really bad stuff again i know why my parents sometimes don't tell me what they went through because there's things i won't tell my children what i went through what i seen Reading through historic accounts, autobiographies, and interviews with survivors, the topic of suicide comes up frequently. Accounts from as early as 1920 tell of groups of children attempting suicide, a trend that continued throughout the system's existence. The idea that children as young as eight years old would attempt to consume hemlock or tie together a makeshift noose from towels to escape life in the schools should outline the desperation and agony children were burdened with. It has been shown that survivors of residential schools share symptoms with others who have suffered in internment camps, such as people of Japanese or Ukrainian heritage in Canada, as well as prisoners of war and victims of ethnic cleansing. As Star Blanket details, There is no doubt that children who have suffered brutalities such as whippings, beatings, confinement, sexual violence, and many more such brutal acts of terror, would be severely and perhaps permanently and fundamentally altered to view the world not from a civilized, but from a traumatized and dehumanized point of view. The neural circuitry structuring of the brain would become wired for the trauma, thus rendering the child vulnerable to dehumanizing messages that would be repeated again and again to him or her through words such as savage, devil worshipper, and dirty Indian. When the trauma begins at an early age, the process of cognitive integration is usually distorted. At least in many cases, observable alterations in brain structures result. Although a variety of long-term therapeutic approaches offer the prospect of compensating for certain aspects of the damage, it is important to note this connection, that what is the real issue are psycho-emotional wounds, not illness. None are known to heal it. I know some have passed away because they, you know, they did drink themselves to death or maybe maybe other substances could have been involved. I, I'm not really quite clear. But uh, some actually died really horrifically, I have to say. And I, you know, God, you know, like it, I, like I even have um, an ex-boyfriend actually that died in a fire that I went to residential school with. Losing our brothers was a very hard thing to deal with. For me, I dealt with that in a very bad way. A decade of just, and finally, you know, I, I faced life and death at a point in my life where um, I didn't have my children. I have four children. I told myself, do I want my children to be without a mom? Like I thought about all the things that I was lacking in my life, um, especially when it came to parenting. That's the awareness that they are lacking. They don't know what we've gone through and what we still continue to go through every day. But yet we still continue to wake up and we're still trying and we're still, you know, we're still here and we're not going away. <laughs> One Friday, we were all excited to go home for the weekend. I missed my baby sister and mother. My good friend pulled me aside and whispered in my ear, let's stay here at the school. I don't want to go home. We can go hide. She had this sad look on her face, and she burst into tears. She was afraid to go home. 
I gave her a big hug and I told her, I'll see you on Monday. Okay. Anniko Kakaintagasmin Institute Sixika Nation. Uh, my name is uh, Clarence Wolflake Jr. Uh, people call me Skip. And this song we used to sing whenever we were asked to, whenever we joined a hand drum contest, and it was taught to me by a guy I used to sing with a long time ago. His name was Herman Yellow Olderman from Sixika Nation. And every time we sang, we ended up winning. We ended up winning first place and. And it was, like I said, it, it was actually a really, really lucky song for us. Actually comes from the Crow Reservation, the Crow people from down south. And it's actually a push dance song. And it's a, so it's a, it's a really tricky song to sing. You really need to use a lot of energy to, to sing it. This podcast was produced by Grace Heavy Runner, Cam Seifert, Hannah Many Guns, and Jasmine Vicarious. With music by Matthew Cardinal and Skip Wolflake. Special thanks to all those who shared stories about their residential school experience. This podcast was made in partnership with CJSW and the Department of Canadian Heritage. If you or someone you know is experiencing pain or distress as a result of the residential school experience, you're not alone. Please call the Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. They are there to help, and they're available 24 hours a day. 